and welcome to Metro Cinema Presents Close Up, the podcast in which we talk about what's coming to Metro Cinema in the month ahead, or at the very least, what we would really like to be able to screen in the month ahead. Close Up is also a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, sponsored by ATB, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Stitcher, Podbean, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Castbox, and probably others as well. My name is Owen Armstrong. I'm a projectionist at Metro Cinema. I also co-host the Metro Cinema Movie Trivia at the Tavern on White every month with one of Nick or Heather, who's sat right opposite me now. That's right. Yes. Hey, I'm Heather. And on, on, in addition to co-hosting trivia occasionally and doing trivia occasionally, I am also the president of Metro Cinema. We've been through this, haven't we? Yeah. It's either the president or the chair. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you've, gone, you've gone with president. The president. That's, that's, what okay. we, that's what we say here. Okay. It's very official sounding. And it's uh, lovely to have you back as well, Talisha. Hi. And tell the people what you do. <laughs> um, I am a front of house manager and the communications specialist at Metro. Excellent. Let's communicate. Mm. Uh, okay, so we... Uh, <laughs> not we're my gonna, specialty. Not your specialty. <laughs> Weird. Uh, we're going to go over some of the things that we are showing in April, and I'm going to be speaking to a few of the curators throughout the show as well. I'll be speaking to the Sally Poulson, who's going to be screening Seeing the Unseen, on the first, and uh, we've also got another series called Panorama Latin American Cinema. Is that correct? Yes. And I'll be speaking to the curator about that. And there's a lot of films for that. But uh, for us, let's let's start on. Let's start uh, with cats, Owen. Well, <laughs> why not then? Okay. <laughs> April first, it's hilarious. We're going to show cats. The uh, new one. The new the new cats. Did anyone actually bother to go and see this um, when it was on at the cinema? I I heard no? groups of people were going to watch it. Because it was so hilarious. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say that, um, and I'm gonna tie this into our 100th screening of the room, which is also happening this month. Maybe so it's might time as well mention that right now. We should, yes. You know, I actually quite enjoy watching terrible movies if they're the right kind of terrible. Okay. And the the experience of the room has changed now because it's this cult phenomenon. And when you go see it in the theater, most of the people there have seen it dozens of times yes. and are quoting along and get a very different thrill out of it, I think, than what it was like the first time Metro screened the room. And I was there for that screening <laughs> in our old location. And that was incredible because no one there had seen it and no yeah. one had any, we had all heard the rumors about how bad it was, but I had never laughed so hard in my life as when I watched the room for the first time. And you know, stuff like Birdemic, and you know these other movies that are known for being awful I have a great time watching them I don't yes. think I yeah. can get into that like long term relationship with them perhaps <laughs> but I would watch Cats and I think now is the time to do it before it becomes this cult cult thing. phenomenon before yeah, it, it might be too late before it replaces the room yeah yeah, that's our, our new monthly screening our new monthly screenings <laughs> it uh, is true that uh, going and watching films like The Room with people that have not seen them before I actually enjoy that more than the experience of watching it myself right uh, because I like to see people just you know the look of utter befuddlement at, like why did this get made yeah how did it get made and then it's actually, you know, it's it's it seems to be completely unself-aware, mm -hmm. and that's the thing you spend the whole time figuring out: is that, did they know that they were doing this at the time? Yeah, well, so many things in the room that are funny. They're not the things that you can just put into like a 10 second YouTube clip. It's no. like the the plot changes, like the yeah. or the way characters get introduced like two thirds of the way into the movie and they're suddenly essential characters. And that's not something that you can, that translates to, like you can't explain to people what makes that so funny. You have to watch it. For such a simple film, it is actually quite hard to describe it's, it, any yeah. of it. And Greg Sestero has been to the cinema multiple times now and he's does, he recorded his own special intro in the auditorium. He's such a fascinating guy because he's just trading on this. <laughs> The, the success in inverted commas of, of The Room I mean it is successful it got made into a, a Hollywood yeah. movie by a person who now no longer works in Hollywood <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually never seen The Room in its entirety oh wow uh, I've pretty much worked every screening of it uh, since I started at Metro 
Uh, I kind of just took over Friday nights and yeah. have continued to work them. So every time I do theater checks, it's like I end up seeing, you know, at least a little bit that I haven't seen before. And it's just out of context. It's so baffling. Yeah. But still like quite funny to go in and you're just like, what is happening? Like, this is hilarious <laughs> what is happening. But also I feel like seeing it as a whole wouldn't stop me from feeling that way about it. No, because every scene yeah. is almost a new movie. It's yeah. It changes it changes direction a lot. So there's there's one part where just random couple stumbles in and yes. making out on the couch and stuff. Yeah. And you're like, what is what is going on? Yeah, that's just never explained. Is it, it just happens and then that's it? No, nothing yeah. is explained. Like nothing honestly, um, that's yeah. great. Yeah, and so cats. I so mean. yeah. Uh, uh, it's supposedly uh, equally as inexplicable um, yeah, for incredible. different reasons perhaps exactly it's it's more bizarre because it had a big studio behind it a hugely you know Lot A-list stars. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I sort of wonder if like if the bizarreness is really just that whole CGIing people into mm-hmm. the cats thing like I I have a VHS of the you know the, the Broadway the Broadway version recording mm-hmm. which like honestly I enjoy watching Shut up, Owen. <laughs> That's all right. I've, I've seen it. I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time, yeah. but it's like when I was a kid, it's like I just really loved watching that. And like when they did the touring thing, my mom took me when I was like eight or nine, mm-hmm. I think. And it's just something different about like these being actual people in costumes on stage versus like this weird the CGI face thing. Like yeah. there was yeah. a Snapchat filter that there's all these videos on the internet of people where it kind of put this weird cat face on them and then there'd be videos of them holding their cat while doing that and the cat's just looking <laughs> up at them in horror and then down at the screen and then like up and it's, like it's hilarious to watch that but I sort of feel like that cat is us watching Cats the movie. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's uh, there's also probably, some, I mean like we said it's, uh, who was it directed that film again? Toby Hooper? Is it? No, wait. No, no, sorry. no. To- that's, that's the guy Tom? that made Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's, Tom, it's some Tom Hooper. Tom, Tom Hooper, okay. Right. Sorry, I'm here. <laughs> that would you be a totally different movie, guys. And if, I, if, I, if, if I'd known that, if that was true, I yeah. would have gone to watch that it. That would be amazing. Yeah. Um, but I would have seen it through those eyes instead um, <laughs> of, of someone that was making it to sort of uh, deliberately uh, dismantle a, a Hollywood what else uh, is machine. Tom um, the, the King's Speech? The King's Speech, yeah. His career is all over the, the place. Danish, the Danish girl. The Danish yeah. girl, yeah. So he's Lane been he's been nominated for uh, for lots of uh, Academy Awards and, mm-hmm. and won as well. I think yeah. the and King's Speech won. And then uh, and it's got a huge cast of oh. A-list celebrities in it, mm-hmm. uh, which the room does not have. And nobody in the room uh, was uh, been able to sort of um, capitalize mm-hmm. on subsequent success. Mm-hmm. Um, but these people are already famous. So, well, however, it is a laughable film. Um, it sounds like it's something that you probably should see or experience just one time, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So April 1st is the time to come and do that with your friends. So, you know, embrace the mystery. Taproot publishes a weekly arts roundup gathering what's happening locally in theatre, dance, visual arts, literary arts and more. It's curated by Fonda Mithrush, a veteran of Edmonton's arts scene and co-host of I Don't Get It, a fellow member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Subscribe to the Arts Roundup for free at taprootedmonton.ca. Uh, so on Sunday the 5th, we also have uh, an event. It's called Another Void. Yeah, and there's so it's a guest programmer. Okay, okay. This was submitted in, last year. Um, it's just one one sc- screening, right? It's one screening, but it's a, a retrospective of the experimental filmmaker Paul Clipson, mm-hmm. who died in 2018. He was a San Francisco-based experimental film artist. Yes. And did a lot of installation and collaborative performances and stuff like that. It will be a lot of different shorts. I think some of it will be on film like 16 millimeter projections and stuff like that so yeah that's right yeah we've yeah. got somebody coming in to set that up as well so it's gonna be really interesting he was uh, um kind of f- featured i wouldn't say regularly but often uh in a magazine called the wire which is a music magazine i used to get a lot of the time in england and he collaborated with the likes of liz harris sarah davachi uh jeffrey cantiledesma and loads of others grouper mm-hmm. um but uh, yeah he died at the age of 53 so we're gonna do a retrospective which is pretty cool actually I think yeah come expecting kind of non-narrative work yeah um, but stuff that's really playing with the form in interesting ways and it's always a great pleasure to be able to show 16 mil film because unlike you you know projecting 35 mil or 70 mil or or digital of course it's a very hands-on medium and you have to do it in the auditorium and it's just it feels kind of like just this more connected 
thing you kind of like open yourself up more to the fact that it won't be it, it you're gonna hear the outside you're gonna hear yeah, the you, film going through the projector you hear the projector mm-hmm. um you know you get a, a real sense of what you don't get a sense of when you go watch a film is that in the size of an auditorium there's a thing called the throw which is the distance between the projector and the screen mm-hmm. so 35 mil if you think of our projectors how far away they are from the screen a tiny little 35 mil frame being projected onto the size of our screen is actually pretty amazing it's um, incredible when it's you know it has the clarity of things like near dark which we have a print of and it just looks fantastic yeah. when you see the projector in the screen you can see the light being thrown to the screen uh, 16 mil again you know it's it's like what quarter size of that it's just yeah. absolutely fantastic experience so definitely come and experience that if you even if you've no idea Paul Clips News come see some come see some video art come find out yeah exactly Ninth, uh, the next in the homicidal series is going to be Female Trouble, which is spectacular. I love John Waters. Yeah. I'm really excited to go see And we one. showed Pink Flamingos uh, recently. I don't think that was for homicidal. Maybe it was. The only familiarity I have with it is the uh, one of the challenges on RuPaul's Drag Race, okay. <laughs> where they all have to reenact scenes from John Waters movies. Yeah. When I was a kid, we had a VHS copy of Crybaby in my house, and mm-hmm. I watched it so many times. This one is from 1974, uh, so it's, an, it's definitely an early one, but it's important for a lot of people, especially filmmakers and, and uh, artists who are kind of carried on in the sort of peripheral boundaries of... Yeah, I would sometimes, yeah, definitely. And it's a bit of a holy grail in terms of transgressive cinema. It's, it's you know, as he probably would describe it himself, an exercise in bad taste. Mm-hmm. And it is, I can't, I wrote down a lot of uh, my favourite lines from the film, which can't be repeated on here because uh, they're just, they're in such poor taste. But it is hilarious. And yeah. uh, Divine is fantastic. All the usual, you know, uh, cast of, of people in there, Edie and um, Mink Stoll and mm-hmm. all these fantastic people. Yeah, it seems like this one has a bit more... Pink Flamingos was this early, very DIY, ragtag kind of movie that was shocking and exciting. But yeah. it, it seems that like Female Trouble has a bit more... Um, actual fans, maybe, where, the, you know, people... It's just a bit a bit of a better crafted movie, maybe? Yeah, I was watching it yesterday, and I don't know that I would... I don't know which one I prefer, actually, to right. be honest. I, I think they're actually quite similar. Uh, obviously, uh, a lot of his early work, and I think maybe nearly all of it, is set in Baltimore. Yeah. There's a really... There's a sort of a, a visible layer of filth on the film mm-hmm. when you watch it. Um, there's also references to scatological acts Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. shall we say which is just bizarre to watch uh, and you're not quite sure why it's happening but it is to give you a brief overview female trouble tells the story of dawn davenport a delinquent high schooler who leaves home after not receiving the christmas present she had asked for after an unfortunate encounter with a lecherous stranger dawn gives birth to a nightmare of a child and later becomes involved with a pair of fascists who own a beauty salon that she frequents She begins modelling for the couple until, through a series of implausible circumstances, she's horribly disfigured after some acid is thrown into her face. Not one to crumble in the face of adversity, Dawn continues to climb the ladder of fame and notoriety and somewhere along the line murders her own daughter, resulting in some very dire consequences. It's just so hard to really explain in a way that sounds enticing or makes any sense but it's just again it's one of those films you kind of got to experience but in a very different way to something like The Room yes. or Cats um, these films have a very special place in the uh, the hearts and minds of a lot of uh, people who appreciate fringe art yeah, basically absolutely. and uh, John Waters is always an advocate of that and, and is uh, uh, just a fascinating person to hear and listen to yeah I also saw him in the Garneau Theatre you did yeah he what was came. that for he just came he <laughs> just did uh, I they, someone brought him in and you, he, he would, would tour around just telling stories and it was a packed house and this was I think when I was in 12th grade or something <laughs> okay. and it was it's just great yeah I mean if you've seen John Waters in an interview then you know but he's, yeah. it's, it's just like a you know a performance basically he doesn't give a dull interview and he's extremely eloquent um, but you know also extremely funny yeah uh, so yeah come and see that oh, on the night at 9.30. So I'm now talking to Sally Poulson, who is a web developer, has a background in broadcasting and journalism, and uh, is going to be also curating a one-off screening of the film Seeing the Unseen, directed by, well, it's a couple of Icelandic directors. I'm going to leave the pronunciation to you. 
because uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to attempt it. Uh, Christian Christensen, I'll go with that. And, yeah, and, and Bjarni Ludwig's daughter. Perfect. Okay, so it's <laughs> from last year. It's uh, it's kind of a screening uh, in response and acknowledgement of uh, World Autism Day, which is on the uh, Thursday, the 2nd of April, although we're screening Seeing the Unseen on the 1st. So, Sally, welcome. Thank you. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about how you uh, ended up on this film and your kind of involvement with putting the screening on. Uh, so, I discovered the film last year before it was released, actually. It was on Reddit on an Women Without Asperger's Syndrome sub, and they were you know touting that this film was going to come out and I was in the process myself of being uh, diagnosed uh, after very long I'd been looking for some answers to uh, issues I was having for like 15 to 20 years I'd been in and out of therapy and had a bazillion diagnoses and had just been diagnosed autistic so I was very excited to see it got on the waiting list got it the second it came out and was really first off just on its own an incredible movie like and not only for people with autism for me obviously it was very moving because you don't see a lot of coverage of women with autism anywhere it's for many years it was considered to be something only men could have and that's just because the symptomology presents differently often in women than it does in men so to see it that alone was incredibly validating, but it actually really stands up for people who have no background or understanding of autism either. Uh, one of the most amazing things of the film, once I sort of became like fangirl for it, was I spoke with the directors and I found out that they were giving it away essentially with no screening fee because they were so compelled to spread the narrative that yes, women can be autistic and the narrative of autism as um, difference as opposed to disability. One of sort of the recurrent themes in autism advocacy is the idea of sort of a medical treatment of autism as something to be cured an illness versus just sort of a natural deviance of how people are and that we socially should account for those differences. And so the film speaks to all of that and I found it really moving and basically started just telling everybody who, you know, I'd be at Arby's and I'd be like, hey, you should see this movie and don't care. Uh, but then I was um, out and about and met some new people and I met Jen, who works at Metro, and she suggested that we we bring it in there. And now we're presenting it, obviously, in association with Metro and the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network of Edmonton, which is a group that I'm a part of. And yeah, I'm very excited for everyone to see it. It is such, as a woman with autism, it's not something you see represented. And even just as an individual with autism, it is something that is represented sort of one of two ways, as this tragic dehumanized figure that we should all just feel so sorry for and go to great lengths to cure, which is not to minimize the experience of people with severe symptoms, but they're still humans, right? Like there's still a human narrative in those people's lives. Or you see like Rain Man, that's kind of like yes. the two options. And even myself, as I was going through the process of being assessed, it was very much a thing where I was like, oh, there's no way I'm like, I know what autistic is. That's not what I am. But then to find out that, in fact, for women, especially women with what is what was Asperger's syndrome, but today is now rolled under an umbrella of autism. It just looks really different. And so I'm excited to sort of be helping in the tiniest way to present something first to an audience that wants to see it uh, and to see themselves reflected, but also to change the narrative a little bit and be like, yeah, this is this is a valid way to be. There's nothing wrong with how you are because I myself for so many years carried this weight of like, am I just a monster? Like what's the matter with me? And nobody could give me an answer. So to see other people that are just kind of like straight up a little bit weird, like I am, I'm like, yeah, all right, cool. We're weird. That's fine. There's nothing terrible about that. That's great. joke with autistics is that and it's not really that funny but it's what everybody says um you've met one autistic then you've only met one autistic right, yeah. because it, it very much is a spectrum and we think of spectrum as left to right but that's not really it's more like a, a wheel and there's lots of overlapping features the best way i've heard it explained um and i mean this is going to vary in this may be more detailed than you or anyone in the world is interested in but with mental health or neurological issues they're generally diagnosed with the dsm-5 which is like the criteria because and i found this super interesting and i will go on about this at length so stop me if i'm boring the, the go bejesus for it. out of me. go for it um when you're being diagnosed with any kind of mental illness, it isn't the same as being diagnosed with like the flu. They can give you a blood test. I mean, that's a bad example, but you get diagnosed with medical illnesses. You can get a blood test. They'll be like, yes, you have this. Here's the medicine we're going to give you. Mental illnesses and autism are diagnosed by observation. And so with that comes a certain set of biases and it can be very difficult to get to that point because so many different ailments have overlapping 
um, symptoms. So for instance, in my sort of narrative over 15 years, I was diagnosed with uh, just, you know, general malaise that human beings have, uh, uh, the eating disorder, an anxiety disorder, uh, borderline personality disorder. Uh, at one point I was evaluated for uh, bipolar disorder. And that what has happened for me is the symptoms of those ailments. Once it became clear, I was diagnosed with ADHD after that. And then people started to suggest autism. And so it became clear to me that a lot of those ailments we're not wrong, right? I had all the criteria that met that, but they were being caused by this underlying difference. Back to my original point, I guess. The DSM-5, there's kind of three tiers to having autism, and they're based on how much social support you're perceived to need. That's its own sort of can of worms that's up for debate, but what used to be Asperger's, uh, so people who have a verbal ability, even if it may be compromised, people that basically need less supports would be ASD1, so Autism Spectrum Disorder 1, and then two, you need more supports, and three, you need the most supports. And it's an interesting way to break it up. It makes sense in terms of diagnosis. Um, it's also, I think, related to like the bureaucracy of having to give, um, when you're giving out, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, supports to people, it's it's kind of easier to be like, well, you don't need that much, so I can kind of knock you off the list. But some of the symptoms that specifically for someone like me, who would be ASD1, I had a therapist describe it to me as being um, a predilection for information over socialization, which to me was just like the answer to every problem I'd ever had, which is I can sort of feign social skills. I can look like I'm having no problem talking to you, but while I'm talking to you right now, I'm having to do like 50 different things to make sure I'm not accidentally being incredibly offensive or rude. I will often say things like, oh, if I'm not smiling, I'm not angry, just so you know. And if I'm being weird, you can ask me what's up. And those are very common for people on the spectrum to have those sort of social, um, it just doesn't come naturally yeah. to us, right? And so we can do it. We have to work much harder at it. And the it doesn't sound like that big a deal, but what that winds up doing, like for me, it makes it very difficult to hold a job full time. Yeah. Um, despite having tons of training and wanting desperately to be able to do it, the world really isn't like, you. oh, you can only work 20 hours a week? Okay, that's just a very difficult situation to find. And people don't default to assuming that when you have autism, or how about this, people don't default to assuming that if you don't make, for instance, eye contact, uh, that you're someone who has a problem making eye contact, they assume you're rude. There's other things that come into it, like um, executive function issues, where it's hard to like um, organize priority or have uh, you have time blindness. Those are things that are also very common with like ADHD. And then you get into like, it's common for people in ASD two and three to have uh, additional comorbid issues with epilepsy and some people are nonverbal. But the important part to me is that no matter what the secondary symptoms are, in all of those cases, you have a, a, a vibrant, real human who wants to communicate. And there are authors and activists and advocates who are nonverbal, who communicate through AAC devices, who tell us that over and over again. And yet there is this sort of overlying picture of autism as being something to be cured and feared. Yeah. Instead of saying like, well, why doesn't the world catch up to, you don't speak, you don't make eye contact. How do we deal, how do we deal with that? How do we make it so that you can get all the special things inside of you out? And this film is a very interesting example of how women with Asperger's are getting stuck in that where because you might be a little bit of an odd duck, you might be a little quirky, there isn't anything to be done with you. People misjudge you and you you just are generally like not liked and it's hard to get a job. So yeah, it's from that perspective, the film is absolutely fascinating. And I think from my experience, captures very accurately what it's like to be an adult woman with autism. One of the most interesting parts of the diagnostic process to me and becoming more active in the community was to meet other women with autism because I went from feeling, walking into a room, even talking to you, um, I think I probably look fairly normal, but this is very difficult for me. I'm putting in a lot of energy to do this. Yeah. And that's cool, I've always had to do that, right? But the first time I walked into a room full of autistic women, I just could feel that I didn't have to do that. And now some of that's going to be psychological, but it's also just people are different. I just spoke the language they're speaking. And so one of the things that I would love to see more films like this, because I would like there to be more spaces where everybody speaks that language 
over the years. So when you're talking about neurodivergency, which tends to include like ADHD, ASD, I think it includes Tourette syndrome and some other things, that, but these ailments where you're just kind of wired differently. Uh, we don't make space for people like that. We don't, even ADHD, like it becomes a punchline for a joke for a lot of people. But I've worked with people that had reputations of being difficult employees, impossible to manage. The, the second I figured out they had ADHD and treated them accordingly, they were the best person on the team. But that's so rare. And so I do think film's a very powerful medium for that, that if you can expose that to people and be like, oh, I get it. I met this girl named Sally and she wouldn't look me in the eye and she was kind of weird. But I saw that movie and they didn't look anybody in the eye and they were a little bit quirky like she is. So that must be her deal. So now I can read a book about that or I can make an effort to learn that. The same way that honestly for my life, I had to learn to speak neurotypical, which was, okay, I have to stare in your eyes. One, two, three, now I have to look away. You're going to think I'm a creep. One, two, three, now I got to look back, right? It is much more akin to learning a language or like being left-handed than it is a disease that should be cured. So, Sally, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Can we expect to see you presenting the film as well, or is that is that something you've talked yeah, about? Yeah, we're doing a panel afterwards. It, we, I'm not sure who all the panelists are, but some of them are going to be other women that have autism that are going to be speaking about their lived experience. So I'm very excited about that. Excellent. Again, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. I'm Tara McCarthy. I work at CBC Edmonton. And there's a lot of things that happen in this city any given week. So we thought, how about we boil it down to some of those top stories, the ones that make you think, or the ones that maybe even make you laugh. Maybe they make you cringe. So we're putting together a new podcast called The Loop. Check it out weekly through CBC Edmonton. Uh, The Loop, you might be wondering, okay, what's this all about? Well, it is literally about keeping you in the loop. More importantly, it's all about going behind the scenes. All sorts of details, I see it every day in the newsroom, don't actually make it into those compact radio and television pieces that you see and that you hear. So we thought we'll take stories like these and we're going to find out more. We're going to talk to the reporters about some of the things like how they even found out about this stuff. We'll talk a little bit about everything, politics, we'll throw some arts in there, community of course. It's about all things Edmonton. Because there's always more to tell. There's always more to the story. I've been in Edmonton for about a year, and I see stories just constantly change. They ebb and flow. I'm learning new things about the city all the time. And maybe you've been here for decades, but there's always new things that we can uncover. So we want to talk about those stories right here on The Loop. Stay in the loop with us, our new weekly CBC Edmonton podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, or more importantly, through your CBC Listen app. I feel like I have something in my tooth. Thank God it's a podcast. <laughs> uh, so Friday the seventeenth at seven o'clock we have uh, a, it's going to well it's part of a new curatorial. I don't know if it's going to be an ongoing thing, but I think it should called Eco Crisis Cinema, and uh, we're showing Todd Haynes' nineteen ninety five film Safe, uh, which is kind of a cross pollination of genre, part psychological drama, part horror. Uh, it's uh, been called one of the scariest films of all time and it is widely recognised as one of the most important films of the 90s if not all time and it's also the one that established Todd Haynes as a kind of a director of uh, capable of achieving uh, mainstream critical recognition are you a Todd Haynes fan? yeah mm-hmm. yeah. me too very much I like Todd Haynes a lot mm-hmm. this was also probably one of Julianne Moore's it was one of her first, certainly her first major feature roles, yeah, for sure. So basically, the centers on on uh, Carol, played by Julianne Moore, who has uh, just a sort of a feeling of a building feeling of impending threat from somewhere. It feels like threat, but it's also it, she feels a sickness and an Ill- illness, which is termed by Todd Haynes as multiple chemical sensitivity. So it's like a just a sort of general unease with the number of chemicals infiltrating her environment all around her she doesn't know what it is and it can't be diagnosed but yes it's it's also about lots of other things as well it's kind of a, an allegory for uh, the AIDS crisis mm-hmm. uh, among other things and that's you know partly why it's uh, uh, part of this series and it's interesting that we're showing it now as well what with the uh, proliferation yeah, of coronavirus absolutely and how people are dealing with it but I would say that f- uh, very few films capture the uh, true sense of alienation that governs a person's psyche as they navigate the effects of an unseen uh, danger or threat and yeah like i said while the threat is 
kind of non-specifically termed multiple chemical sensitivity. You don't, again, you don't really find out what it is. Haynes never clarifies what it is that's actually causing it. But that feeling of uh, overwhelming perpetual discomfort it is juxtaposed very nicely against the kinds of treatment, both medical and social, that are thrown at an undiagnosed illness. And this is something that we're kind of coming to terms with having conversations about more commonly now, things relating to depression and anxiety and how we have those conversations mm-hmm. in increasingly more public forums. But how do we diagnose fear in the case of the film is it the pressure of society is it a virus does it stem from an emotional imbalance again we don't ever really find out and that's kind of the beauty of it as well is it's almost like starting this conversation that we're only starting to have now and this was in 95 so um yeah because I've, yeah. I've also heard it described that as like someone who might be agoraphobic or something too <laughs> that's like certainly possible there are things that happen in the film that probably kind of steer it away from that a little bit but that again it's never really clarified so that's again kind of the beauty of it both an advantage and disadvantage of our kind of current social media climate is being able to observe the tornado of reaction amid the uh, crisis of something like coronavirus which has ignited a kind of unbelievable crossfire of fact and fear-mongering you know just like perpetually sort of vying for your attention so, yeah, if you are on social media a lot, then you, you you hear everything from every angle across the entire spectrum, and it's very difficult to sort of draw a line through that that makes sense. There's um, a bit of interesting trivia about the filming of this yeah. movie. Uh, it happened right after an earthquake <laughs> in Los Angeles, and so the, th- like, the idea that there were aftershocks and damages and like things could still happen kept the, the crew in like this state of kind of, well, <laughs> yeah. fear. So it's kind of like experiencing that emotion while making this movie about something that it's like, it may happen, it may not happen, you don't know, and it's that Mm. not knowing. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of interesting that that was the film they were making while feeling that. It completely comes across if you haven't seen it. I can't really recommend it enough. Uh, Nick was uh, usually uh, takes part in the podcast as well. I was very excited that we were showing it. It's one of his favorite films. And it is one of mine as well. It's, uh, it's, again, it's um, so few films are able to really handle things like that so delicately, the feeling of alienation and really depict it in an accurate way. Um, and it really, really captures that quite kind of magnificently. Yeah, it depicts the chaos of that kind of gray area um, where reason and rationale are not part of the conversation. I'd, I'd say it's an important film to watch in terms of how you understand the people around you and you know people that you know that have uh, issues relating to things like anxiety and and social anxiety you know clinical or otherwise whatever it is there's a few like really really key points in the film again if you guys haven't seen it it won't make much sense but carol played by julianne moore when she first arrives at this uh she's taken to a place called the renwood institute the retreat is sold as the answer to her problems if you're suffering from these symptoms this is where you need to go to to fix yourself um, and it becomes clear really, really quickly that she's kind of walked into a sort of cult-like community uh, with the same, you know, prescribed notions of how to mend the way we feel. And she becomes even more isolated knowing that, that it, singing songs about love and learning a very bland version of self-worth is not going to provide her with the answers that she needs. And Haynes is also kind of levelling his own attack at this kind of commercial therapy uh, that not only kind of trivialises whatever problems people may have, but also redirects the blame back at its clients mm. Telling them that, books. yeah their troubles are simply they stem from some kind of internal disharmony so yeah. whatever it is that's wrong with you it's your fault and it's your it's your it's your up to you it's your decision to fix it yeah. and that's and all that's all you need to do is just flick that switch and it's not a very helpful way of, of and uh, there's still that. like that's so relevant now because there's still so many people out there especially on like in like instagram people who are just <laughs> shilling this stuff right being self-help like, gurus on uh, on instagram well like new yeah. age ones mm-hmm. too it's like yeah you just need your uh, quartz crystal <laughs> and uh to do like that tapping thing and you'll just tap away your problems Green smoothies. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's you just gotta get your chakra so aligned mm. yeah that's all it is yeah would you say that it kind of looks at this idea of alienation and these things as a type of trauma it's interesting because Julianne Moore's character, part of the problem that she's having is being is, is not being able to communicate what it is that's, that's wrong with her as well. She just has this, she has, a, you know, shortness of breath. She can't breathe a lot of the time. And that's when she first discovers that something is wrong and she's not sure what it is, but she's told it must be chemical. So you must be allergic to 
a chemical and it's one of the what products you're using or whatever it may be and that isn't it and early on you see her struggle with describing it to her husband who becomes angry with her because she can't describe what it is and that again makes it worse so you're not sure if it's a, if it's a is a chemical thing or a social tension or something within her that does it but it kind of leaves that open-ended enough for you to consider that as, as part of the reason why people have the problems that they do mm-hmm. so it doesn't specify but i would say that that's part of reading it and i think that that's yeah. where it's where it's kind of so deftly written there's a few different things that i've looked at in like the past year of school and it's uh some of it overlaps in that sense of like specifically i guess like my um one of my english classes where we're looking at uh women's writing post me too movement but even that aside it's the idea of you know having these symptoms and or problems or even outside of a class just like people with pain of some kind and going to doctors and doctors being like there's nothing wrong with you right when there so clearly is something happening in the yeah. body that the doctor just maybe doesn't know like you need a specialist but they don't know who to refer to you so that's just easier to dismiss it as yeah. being in someone's head right both with physical pain but also emotional pain is like trying to explain to someone what you're going through and if you don't have the language for it or if they don't have the capacity to understand what you're using mm. is in its own way kind of a traumatic event mm-hmm. because yeah. it's like they're dismissing not only your experience of it but also the, the fact that you are literally having these problems and no one is doing it no one's even trying to help they're yeah. just like you know it's so dismissive it is extremely dismissive and uh, it's interesting as well that it can be dismissed as something that's psychosomatic as though that isn't a problem in itself right yeah, like exactly. the connection between emotional discomfort and physical discomfort they're not mutually exclusive those are kind of intertwined yeah sometimes. i mean if, you, if you're you suffering can. from shortness of breath that's a physical manifestation of an it can be of an emotional mm-hmm. yeah. issue and you know to try and sort of reduce it to um one thing or the other so that you can diagnose it with a drug or with going to a self-help group and having a bunch of people who have you know supposedly similar problems but likely not at all mm-hmm. just talk about it as though that's supposed to fix it there's no real effort to really try and make sense of it really try and sort of you know empathize with what that is again if you don't suffer from those things it's up to you to open your mind to ways of understanding that but i do think that kind of leads on really really nicely to another one which is part of the eco crisis series which is uh, paul schrader's first reform which collectively was one of our favorite films of 2017 mm-hmm. a highly acclaimed film about a pastor reverend ernst toller played by Ethan Hawke in maybe the finest performance of his career, I think, actually, who is struggling through a crisis of faith, to put it in a very sort of broad, general description. Through a series of circumstances, uh, Reverend Toller meets a guy who expresses deep concerns about the environment. Bringing a child into the world that is collapsing around you is that, you know, a responsible thing to do. Toller regards the issue of climate change in that circumstance to be one of simple Christian uh, stewardship, which is an interesting linkage that isn't often made, I think, in, in films that, you know, religion and the environment don't have to be separate. Right. Mm-hmm. And this uh, increasingly becomes like an overpowering cause of disruption in his life, as well as that sort of crisis of faith. It's not being able to align those ideas with the people around you, the people that run own the church that he runs, which is a sort of failing establishment. It's like a quaint little church. It's beautiful, but no <laughs> one goes there. And uh, that seems to be part of the problem as well, is that no one's listening and... and Again, that's kind of like an echo of um, of uh, of the world we live in, um, not dissimilar to safe. As I was saying to Heather earlier, that uh, when we watched, when we showed it at, at uh, Metro, we showed it a few times, but I only really watched it through the little window at the booth, mm. um, which is not a great way to really absorb the kind of tension of certain films, especially that one. It's it's so funny because you know, and I've I've probably repeating myself here because I, I saw Paul Schrader talk about this in Montreal last year right, yeah. and you know the kind of the story behind this film is that Paul Schrader wrote this book on transcendental cinema back in the 70s and this was his time to finally make a transcendental film mm-hmm. um, so these are film you know inspired by Bergman and Dreyer and I think and, I read that yeah and Bresson yeah so you know there's a lot of ties to Winter Light by Bergman and Diary of a Country Priest 
by Robert Bresson. And you don't think about those films as very tense films. And somehow this movie draws from those films and um, is engaged with those films in, in very obvious ways. And yet I was on the edge of my seat mm. the whole way through this movie. This time around watching it in the comfort of my own living room, there is a superbly palpable tension mm-hmm. um, between Toller and the church as his kind of moral character is questioned. You kind of don't just sit on the edge of your seat. It actually makes you really angry mm-hmm. that no one's listening. It actually doesn't really ever resolve that. I think that's another thing that I like about it. And safe is that it it's not telling you that there's a, there's a direct answer out there. It's an, it's a, it's something that we need to be talking about. And I think that's it's a really interesting. It's a beautiful series actually. The yeah. eco crisis in cinema. It, um, leave, it leaves it open to a lot of interpretation. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's that's really really important it's just is you know starting the discussion it's interesting in this series both safe and first performed like the idea that's really in both of these is this isolation and alienation yeah mm-hmm. yeah powerlessness i think is something yeah. that Absolutely. really mm-hmm. ties or these to two films together. not just not be able to talk about it or, or the feeling of isolation but to actually be told to stop talking right that do yeah um which is uh, again not an uncommon response to you know people whose issues are difficult to diagnose mm-hmm. definitely come and see that uh, if you haven't seen it I, I it's a great film to see on the big screen again as as i mentioned it's purely aesthetic but uh, seeing films that intense in 4-3 makes you feel all of the horrific tension of the atmosphere of discomfort this confined claustrophobic feeling all the way through it and it's uh, really really brilliant uh, go to metrocinema.org to find out more details about that but do not miss those films they're amazing Okay, so joining me right now is uh, Andrea Barragan, mm-hmm. I hope I'm saying that correctly, uh, who is the uh, curator of, uh, I don't know if it's a one-off or it's going to be the beginning of a, of a series, but it's called Panorama Latin American Cinema, which is a series of about six or seven, by the looks of it, films that uh, have a common thread that Andrea is now going to describe to us. Yeah, so um, I was working on something similar in Melbourne when I was living in Australia, and when I knew that I was coming to Canada, I was trying to find a space uh, where I could, you know, do something similar or curate this uh, program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came across Metro, and it was really exciting because Edmonton was the city that I was looking into settling. And that's how I knew online that they had a form to apply if I wanted to be a guest curator. And that's that's how I, I came across Metro. And this program is about Latin American cinema. It doesn't necessarily has to be made in Latin America, but um, hopefully it'll be Spanish or an indigenous language from the continent, and um, it would tackle Latin American issues. My topics are usually queerness, relationships, very personal relationships, and immigration. Oh, well, let's just start off with uh, the first in the series. So the series runs from um, Friday, April 3rd, through to uh, April 29th on various dates. We've got uh, a couple of films to show more than once. Mm-hmm. But the first in the series is going to be The Eternal Feminine from 2017, which is a Mexican film mm-hmm. uh, directed by uh, Natalia Beristin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the it's a biopic of the life of Rosario Castellanos, who, as well as being a poet and author uh, and one of the most important literary voices of the last century, was also a key figure in the feminist movement in Mexico in the 50s. Yeah, so this film is a really powerful fam- um, film, and I like to open the program with this one because it's a strong film, and it is not a common biopic. Mm-hmm. It's not depicting the, you know, awards or, you know, achievements of the poet. It's focusing on the struggles of Rosario Castellanos mm-hmm. as as an, a writer and a feminist in contrast to the relationship with her husband and lover for many years. It's like the struggle of being a writer, a mother, a partner in the 1950s with all of these beliefs of um, gender equality, but at the same time having such a struggle of being able to do that at home. It's, this next one looks absolutely fantastic. There's a film called La Casa Lobo, or The Wolf House. Yeah. And uh, so this is directed by uh, Cristobal Leon and uh, Joaquin Cochina. This is from 2018. It's the story of a young woman who takes refuge in a strange house in the woods, escaping from a German colony in uh, southern Chile. And this is inspired by the true story of Colonia uh, 
Dignidad. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Paul Schoffer, which was uh, the leader of this colony, after the Second World War in Germany, flew to um, Chile with around 200 people to build this colony with his followers. He was being chased after uh, the war ended, and so he went and settled remotely, set up his village and a community there. And then later he was found guilty of a lot of sexual abuse against children and everything that he was kind of doing to the benefit of the community was actually really, really sickening. And then when the coup d'etat in Chile like um, put this, uh, the dictator in place, then they had an agreement and a lot of the um, war prisoners ended up in his camp. He set up this as, as, a, as a torture camp and a lot of them were tortured and killed there. So this story begins as a fairy tale that he's telling to convince the people that his uh, and his community is, is a safe place and it's a wonderful place that just makes honey for the people who wants to live a pure life. Uh, and then th it becomes this stop motion animation of how uh, this girl who runs away ends up in this house trying to survive and and he's depicted as this the wolf which is like this enigmatic character but at the same time it's really a mean mean person mm -hmm. so it's very 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 interesting how the story it's made and entangled with fairy tale and fairy tales and how fairy tales are usually like sweet and magical but the only way to contrast that was with a stop motion animation that's very uncanny <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh, it also draws on uh, three little pigs yeah three little pigs and well. the little red hood uh, little red riding hood yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but places it in this incredibly heavy context so it's uh, yeah it looks like a brother's quay film <laughs> like it's really really dark but yeah. feature length um, yeah. and it's very very unique in the way that it's uh, sort of styled it looks absolutely fantastic yeah and the way it was shot is like the camera is always moving there's yeah. no one shot that where the camera is set on the same spot and the film is always it's like a one shot sequence you know even though it's a stop animation everything is moving all the time yeah it's amazing not all these films uh, originate from outside of Canada because yeah. this one is a uh, Canadian, mm -hmm. uh, Canada and Uruguay, I think it was a sort yeah, of like yeah, a, a, a co-creative project. And it's a uh, film about a young woman who travels to Uruguay after the death of her father to visit with her paternal grandmother, who she hasn't spoken to since leaving the country, mm -hmm. uh, and returns to find that, that uh, you know the place has changed and she doesn't really have a home there anymore, as, as far as I understand it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a story of a lot of... Um, immigrants first generation immigrants mostly or or children who just travel very young mm -hmm. to settle in a new place this was her parents dream to leave uruguay to come to canada right and she left uruguay when she was like five or something uh and she really didn't want to she was like why are we going blah blah, blah. and then she has her life in uh canada and when she's a teenager she comes back to her grandma's house. But by this point, her father has died and her mom lives in Canada, but they were divorced, separated. And then she's trying to figure out, do I belong to this place? I speak the language perfectly and I can relate. But at the same time, it's like, where do I fit? Yeah. Either here or there, which is, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. And uh, a common problem notion, feeling for lots of immigrants lots who are forced to uh, leave uh, yeah. their places of, of origin and then have to try and establish themselves elsewhere and then finding that when they return to these places that uh, they've kind of been left behind in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and then the one, actually this is the, the only one that you hadn't seen so far, which was Tremors or yeah. Tremblora, directed by... Jairo Bustamante, yeah. 2019, yeah. So this is the story of Pablo, a 40-year-old married father of two children, a role model and practicing evangelical Christian, but his uh, traditional life begins to 
crumble when he falls in love with a man and uh, Pablo finds his feelings in conflict with his beliefs. Jairo Bustamante had a, his first first film was uh, Ixcanul and he says that in that film he wanted to show how the first, like a woman struggles with the society's ideas and her uh, ideals uh, are in this conflict with the external, right? And in this film it's uh, kind of the internal struggle of someone who is an evangelic Christian but at the same time homosexual and is trying to make in its peace but there's no peace in when you are taught or living in these um, extreme uh, religious beliefs that for the film director they have no um, rational grounds in his country or in, in, in this circumstance at least so it's how how to struggle with double standards and how in the name of religion you can twist ideas of love and respect and community. And what's most scary is that he himself is an homosexual, but at the same time he's homophobic, you know? So it's like he can't accept himself and he can't be happy either way. No, no. I suppose nicely tying in with that, moving on to the next one, will be Bixer Travesty. This is uh, directed by Kiko Goffman and Claudia Priscilla. This is from mm -hmm. 2018. Yeah. Uh, and this is uh, this is the story of Linda Quebrada, <laughs> a fearless trans woman artist from Sao Paulo whose boundary-pushing performances combine music and raw provocation to deconstruct patriarchal and cisgender norms. Uh, yeah. So this film won the, the Teddy Award for Best Documentary at the Berlin Film Festival. Uh, and it uh, kind of opens up an urgent and empowering conversation about gender, class and race within Brazilian society. Uh, and the title, Bixa Travesty, also uh, is a form of reclamation, uh, given that it's a slang term meaning tranny fags. It's yeah. kind of reclaimed that. It's reclaiming the, the term, absolutely. She's a really interesting subject as well. Quebrada is a survivor of cancer as well, mm. uh, having found a cure in 2017, or reached a cure rather. Mm. She was also one of four subjects in the Alice Riff film uh, Mio Corpo e Politico, which is My Body is Political from 2017, mm. which depicts the daily struggles of transgender people living in Sao Paulo. Mm. But yeah, talk to us about this. This is a fascinating sounding film. This is one of my favorites in the program. Bicha Travesti, it's such a powerful and strong documentary. And at the same time, it's dealing with a lot of important topics and very tough but she does it in a way that it's funny and it's resisting mm -hmm. you know it's, it's just fascinating she is her uh, her body is political and everything that she does is political and you can see a lot of the underground scene in sao paulo in this documentary and a lot of the documentaries they're just conversations with her and her musician partner and they're just talking about how it is to live as a trans black woman in brazil on a daily daily yeah. basis and use that to resist and to put in their lyrics, which they're amazing as well, through art and music and photography and every mean that she can use, she uses it. And then the last in the series, The Cordillera of Dreams, directed mm -hmm. by Patricio Guzman. Guzman. And that's, uh, that's from last year. Is, uh, uh, so uh, Guzman is a acclaimed Chilean director, mm -hmm. uh, finishing his uh, geographic trilogy about his home country uh, with his ode to the Andes, a crossing point for him and many others. The first two films in the trilogy were Nostalgia for the Light from 2010, which focused on the North. Mm -hmm. uh, the Pearl Button from 2015, which focuses on the south, now he turns to the uh, majestic Cordillera mm -hmm. of the Andes that runs the length of Chile's eastern border. Yeah. Yeah, so this documentary was the winner of the Best Documentary Award at the Cannes Fin Film Festival. And he is someone who's Chilean and who has focused his work on Chile his whole career but doesn't live in Chile, in Chile anymore. So he's like uh, an expat uh, living in France, I think. Yeah. Most of his work or the majority of his work is him trying to find his voice and, and place in this land that he has left and within the society that he no longer belongs to, you know? And this film is trying to understand, it may, it's like a political statement, trying to understand the geolo like the Cordillera position through the history of Chile and denouncing so much violence and sh so much injustice that happened during the dictatorship 
and that still happens in, in the country. And he does that with a lot of archival images from one of his best friends who stayed in the country and records everything or tries to record as much as he can from every protest in, in Chile. It's an outstanding documentary in the views that we see of the Cordillera. I can't wait to see this in the big screen. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's denouncing how much violence and injustice is is there you know? yeah so that's all the films that starts uh, again on friday april 3rd and then multiple dates up until april 29th go to metrocinema.org and check out uh, more details andrea thank you so much for coming and talking to me okay cool thank you thanks for having me uh, at 9 30 it's part of national canadian film day uh, we're going to show david cronenberg's 1996 film crash which is adapted from a novel by J.G. Ballard, also called Crash. So the film and the book tells the story of film producer James Ballard, played by James Spader, and his wife Catherine, played by Deborah Cara Unger. And the pair are in in an open marriage, but for the most part only seem to be able to engage in somewhat unsatisfying extramarital sex. Uh, That is until Ballard gets into a car crash and through circumstance meets Dr. Helen Remington, played by Holly Hunter. As the two begin an affair, it becomes evident that the experience of being in a car crash and mutually so close to death is the source of much arousal for them. In pursuit of this new rush, they attend a performance by Bob Vaughan, who shares a similar fetishization of auto-related sexual encounters and they kind of become part of this strange cult that he kind of leads. I find the Ballard's work like really interesting, this kind of mixing of utopia and dystopia and it's just like a weird inter like the place where he intersects is just it kind of becomes this weird world where the characters are all just kind of using each other yes. for their own gain uh, I was watching an interview with David Cronenberg where he was talking to uh, Viggo Mortensen because they both made History of Violence right. and uh, Eastern, Eastern Promises, Promises. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on but they were t- it was prior to a screening of Crash and uh, to describe the film I think I mean Cronenberg says it's a horrible rendering of what a car is it's not a f- movie for car lovers despite the fact that it is a- about people who like to make loving cars right. <laughs> um, the, you know he doesn't so it, it, he sees them as um, just very cold and it's not a fetishization of, of cars in any kind of traditional sense but perhaps in a in the truest sense right. and uh, again it's that never-ending search for that uh, climactic fulfillment uh, amid the kind of what he uh, has described in his film as a sort of a jagged viscerality of, of twisted metal uh, I don't mean literally described I mean that's the way that it feels when you watch it again you talk about the performances in it there's an unusually kind of performative uh, physicality to how the dialogue is exchanged in the film. There's not a wasted piece of dialogue in it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's exchanges are kind of very pointed, very poetic. Motivated. Again, like you say, a little bit, but it's yeah, it's motivated. It's like it's like everybody is trying to get something out of somebody right. in as few words as possible. And I really that really kind of lends itself to that feeling of uh, the feeling of like perpetual lust that's never fulfilled it's just like it's it, you just want something so bad you're addicted to something and you're not sure what it is um, and he just paints that world so beautifully and despite its dark undertones and the difficulty of how it must be to, to express your sexuality through these very uh, unorthodox modes kind of makes it very real kind of very visceral and I've forgotten that it was actually like a, one of my favourite Cronenberg films I always think of Cronenberg and I think of you know The Fly and right. uh, Dead Ringers mm-hmm. I forget how strange crash really is you know as a book and a film uh, yeah. it's not a thing that is talked about very commonly in as a uh, matter of fact or you know as, as frankly as it is in that film it's not kind of made light of it's not um, it's not like it's turning it into some sort of uh, horror film it's talking very explicitly about the the strangeness of fetishization sometimes it can just take you to all sorts of places yeah. at the very end of the film there's a great line where Spader says to his wife, maybe the next one. And they're just sort of like working their way through, because of course they're having these extramarital relations. You know, they're always, again, unfulfilled, but they're just, they're always on the search. That's 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 their kink. That's their fetish. It's not just being close to death or having sex in cars and things like that. It's not about that. It's it's about the search. It wouldn't be a desire if it was something that was fulfilled. I think that's yeah, part of the right. interesting complication of, of desire and fetishization is mm-hmm. that it's you never quite get it. That's what keeps it 
keeping it at a distance, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. or, or, or you know, some sort of uh, un- unachievable, unscratchable itch is part of why it becomes as prevalent in your mode of desire as it does. The penultimate film in G.H. Loomer's excellent Seven Deadly Sins series is likely one of the most gruelling and unforgettable films you'll ever lay your eyes and ears on. It's called Come and See from 1985 and it was directed by Elam Klimov based on the co-authored 1978 book I Am From the Fiery Village by Alice Adamovich, Janka Brill and Vladimir Kolesnik. Come and See focuses on the Nazi German occupation of Belarus and the events as witnessed by a young Belarusian partisan teenager named Fliora who, against his parents, wishes joins the Belarusian resistance movement. The film depicts the Nazi atrocities and human suffering inflicted upon the Eastern European populace mixing hyper-realism with an underlying surrealism and philosophical existentialism with poetical, psychological, political and apolitical themes. It is without doubt one of the most intense and visceral cinematic experiences I've ever had but at the same time it's hard not to gaze in awe at the sheer accomplishment of it as a piece of art. It's an achievement of both intellectual depth and aesthetic beauty not unlike some of Tarkovsky's finest moments where thematic and narrative lines intersect seamlessly with cinematic craftsmanship. Frequently considered to be one of the greatest war films of all time, Come and See is also a cinema of the senses and makes wonderful use of things like the Steadicam to entrench you in its hellishly real environment. Feeling that he would be unable to surpass what he'd achieved, Come and See was Elam Klamov's last film, and while that sounds somewhat dramatic, it does make sense once you've seen it. I can only imagine what it must have been like to recreate the horrors inflicted on so many innocent people and not expect for that to have had a lasting, life-changing impact. Come and see screens on Tuesday 21st at 6.30. Finally, Heather. Yes. It's your staff pick. Yeah, I didn't even like think about what I was going to say so about what? it. Oh, well, we'll just, just have a stab. I'll just have a stab. Yeah, so yeah, they're... Every few months, staff at Metro gets pick, and apparently we've now run through our staff, and our turnout <laughs> over is nice and low. So as the board president, I, I got to pick one this month. And man, it is a hard thing to do. Yes, it is. A yeah. lot of things go into this, a lot of factors go into this decision, especially as someone who's on the programming committee and can kind of suggest things from time to time. You know, um, this month we're screening the Coker trilogy, and like that could have been a staff pick, you yeah. know, but I kind of you know, got got a say in screening that. So, you know, part of it was going, what could I screen right now that I wouldn't probably get the opportunity to screen through our regular programming? And Vagabond is my favorite Varda film that I've seen. Um, it's one of my favorite movies, um, for sure. I only saw it for the first time just over a year ago. Okay. And we've done a lot of Varda lately. Yes. So I kind of thought, okay, if I don't play this now, it's going to be a while before we come back to her. But I, it's really what's interesting about it. A lot of things are interesting about it it's structurally very tight and very controlled so uh there's this thing where every 12 minutes there is this right to left panning shot that follows the central character she walks through this kind of barren landscape the soundtrack for it is very unusual and very atmospheric but i mean that doesn't even really explain what the movie's about it is a film that follows a uh, young drifter woman in rural france so she's a homeless woman but the film opens on some people discovering her dead body in a ditch and then it kind of goes back into her last few days alive and it's kind of pieced together based on the interactions she had with other people in the community kind of thinking about it recently i realized this came out in 1985 and you know as a huge twin peaks fan i have to wonder if this had any influence on twin peaks because opening on this young dead woman and like the connections that she had made with people and the mystery of who this person was because that's really what this movie is about is that this character is someone who has rejected connecting with other people. So right. she encounters people, but her encounters are all very transactional. Or she's she basically she needs something and she uses them while she needs them. And so because of that, you will never know the heart of this person because she refused to let people in. Right. And I did write a paper about this. <laughs> and I think that this is kind of a theme in... Uh, a lot of artist films is some it, it, I think it's kind of a feminist message about the way that women are objectified and how it prevents them from having connections with other people so in Cleo from five to seven 
uh, Cleo has kind of um, embraced this objectification and so has this very superficial narcissism that prevents her from connecting with people until she realizes that she may die. And in contrast, the main character in Vagabond is kind of someone who has completely rejected the role that she's supposed to have in society. So right. even though she is this young, beautiful woman, Sandra Bonaire, the actress, is like undeniably beautiful. She is, as a homeless person, like you could almost feel like you can smell her <laughs> on the film. Like she, it's not this romanticized version of what it would be to be homeless. Like she's, you know, wearing ragged clothes that she's been wearing clearly for a very long time. At the very beginning, she takes a bath in the in the ocean, basically. But like, there's parts where she's like eating tuna out of a can with her fingers, and you just, you know, that that's like that smell is going to emit off her. <laughs> so it feels very much like this rejection of the role that a woman is supposed to play in society. But because of that, she's also completely rejected society. Yeah. That's a sound That's a, a, a sound endorsement. That's going to be on Monday the 27th at 7 o'clock. Yeah. So don't miss that. Yeah. That and fantastic. I like the idea that there's a... That there's, even if it doesn't exist, the connection between the well parallel that you've drawn between that and Twin Peaks. Is yeah, kind of, I, I I've bought uh, into it myself. Extension of the I, even I, 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 I just it. made it up. Um, <laughs> it's kind of cool too because the the way the film plays with narrative, like there's all these different types of indirect and direct address. So sometimes a character will just turn to the camera and start talking to the camera, and another time it'll feel more like it's a like sometimes it'll feel like a soliloquy mm. and other times it will feel like you're watching a documentary where they're speaking to an interviewer off camera. And then sometimes you are just overhearing two people's conversation. So it kind of plays with all the different ways that you can reveal this information about what a person is thinking. Yeah. Okay, cool. But yeah, I think that more or less does bring us to the end of the month with the exception of a couple of other things there's uh, we've got what well, we've, we've got kiss of the damned uh, which is part of uh, Lacey's dead film series uh, a couple of other things on 420 we are showing sorry april 20th uh <laughs> we are showing uh, dazed and confused and pineapple express and yeah there's a whole series of kind of curatorials this month as well there's lots of great things to see donny darko playing on uh, the 12th as part of metro retro so go to metrocinema.org and find out more details about all of that uh, but for now, thank you very much for coming, Heather. You're welcome. Thank you very much for coming, Tanisha. You're welcome. And I also... Um, so th yes, yes right thank there. you. <laughs> Just need to give yourself a round of applause. Huh? I'm applauding both of you. It's customary for you to applaud back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Stay safe out there. <laughs>